This episode of Creative Control is brought to you by Verizon, the network America relies on. I think growing up in Cleveland, you know, industrial Midwestern city was fell on tough times when we were kids. Everyone had a chip on their shoulder because we were made fun of constantly. The river caught on fire. The mayor's hair caught on fire. The, you know, we're sort of the, it was New Jersey and Cleveland competing for, you know, the armpit of America at the time. And, uh, and it gave us a certain attitude growing up and a disruptive attitude. I'm your host, Casey Finey, and this is Creative Conversation, a Fast Company podcast. I think it's easy to get caught up in the staggering commercial successes the Russo brothers have had in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, but what's always worth mentioning are the creative swings and chances they've taken, not just in the MCU, but throughout their entire career in TV and film. Whether it's their own work or producing someone else's through their company, Agbo, Joe and Anthony Russo have made it their mission to disrupt storytelling, or as Joe sums it up, through creative fuckery. In our conversation, the Russo brothers explain their dynamic as a directing duo, how they're using their massive platform to elevate overlooked stories and directors, and the personal reason why they chose to adapt the best-selling novel Cherry as their latest project. All right, Anthony, Joe, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Roger Casey. Thanks. Oh, man. So, I mean, (laughs) the famed Russo brothers, I feel like, you know, conceivably, you two could have had separate careers in TV and film. And so I kind of want to start at the beginning, like what made you two want to even work together in the first place? I was the Hughes brothers. (laughs) You know, Ant and I were film fanatics growing up. We're students of film. We're guys who just had a large appetite and a wide array of interests in different genres. We were pop culture junkies. And uh, this is a combination of two things. One was Rodriguez had made El Mariachi and he had inspired this wave of, you know, credit card movies across the country because he got discovered by Miramax and the movie got released and he became a famous filmmaker. So uh, I think the year we applied to Slamdance, there were some 2000 movies were made on credit cards around the country and all submitted to this festival and everyone hoping for a lottery ticket. When we made our film, I think we decided to direct together because of the Hughes brothers and the Coen brothers. You know, the landscape was changing, co-directing was becoming a thing and Menace to Society, I think, had just come out. And Anthony and I thought, you know, because I think we had a very brief conversation about, okay, you direct and I'll produce, or I'll produce, or I'll direct and you produce. And then we thought, you know, let's just direct together because neither of us was happy being the producer. Naturally. And what about this dynamic works? Like, what do each of you bring to this collective creative process? I think part of the reason why our partnership works is that you know again it it starts back from when uh, the time period joe was citing where we were sort of growing up with a shared passion about movies that turned into it was basically a cycle of us watching and talking about movies with one another and that sort of dialogue that we developed with one another about films ended up evolving at some point into a dialogue about how to make films and then pretty much our process is just this sort of kind of strange Socratic dialogue where Joe and I kind of just work ourselves through our ideas with one another and sort of find shape in that and form in that and direction in that. That's just the sort of the, uh, the essence of our process. And we've been doing it so long now 
you know, we can communicate a lot, uh, quite a bit with one another without words. So from the outside, you don't always see it, but it's, uh, it's based on a long relationship of dialogue. And Joe, I don't know if you have anything to add to that, because I'm just, I'm curious to know, like, is there someone who's more so like the wild thinker and the other person who's sort of like kind of, you know, tethers it a little closer to reality? Like, how would you describe you know, the, because what, what, what we see is sort of the end product. We just see, you know, your your sort of collective vision. But I'd love to hear a little bit about, you know, I don't know if there's a specific project that you, you know, can use an, as an example, but, you know, what what is it that you two specifically bring that you wouldn't get separately? Like, what is it, like, what do you bring separately that makes it a Russo Brothers production or Russo Brothers film? We don't try to analyze the process too much for fear that we'll break it, right? But I think we're different thinkers. You know, I'm a macro thinker and some micro thinker, you know, and I think we complement each other in that regard. I'm sort of a high energy, high functioning 80, you know, ADHD, and he's he's a more um, focused, um, um, diligent, uh, uh, about the details, you know? So I think that those two energies combined create this forward momentum and then a slowdown to like comb the details and then a forward momentum and a slowdown to comb the details. So I think we we complement each other in that way. And I think it's fascinating because we did really did start studying other brother directing teams when we just made this decision to do it. And, you know, like the Coens, I believe one was producing, one was directing. That's where that the argument came from. And then the Hughes brothers, when they were co-directing, they would specifically divvy up tasks. One would dealt specifically with actors, and the other would deal with the camera. And so there was a there was a lot of conversation between the two of us. Well, how does this? How do we formalize a process amongst ourselves? These seem to be the two models of how you do it. And I think we tried to pursue the Hughes brothers model for a little while, because I had taken acting, you know, I was getting an MFA in acting at Case Western at the time. And we realized, well, that wasn't right for who we are in our personalities. So we started to define our own model for it. And again, this was very early stages of like co-directing. So there wasn't much to point to, you know, there weren't many people doing that. And I believe it was just brand new to the guild. And I mean, remind me, was it well, the Hughes brothers were the first people, first team approved by the guild to direct together, right? Yeah. So the you know, the guild has always been very guarded about approving directing teams, which is, you know, we've never spoken directly with the Cohen brothers about this, but what we were told was they were initially denied co-director status, which is how they fell into this relationship of producer-director with one another. But in the 90s, with that big wave of independent cinema that happened the guild was trying to become very flexible to how people wanted to work because they were sort of this Hollywood institution that was kind of perhaps too rigid with big Hollywood filmmaking. They wanted to figure out, well, how, how, do, how are all these sort of indie voices, you know, people coming from anywhere now making movies, how do they want to work and how we should be adaptable to that. So that kind of opened a door for them approving directing teams in a way they, they didn't like doing previously. So I think that was the environment that we came in to. Yeah, and that was, I think it was 93 when Menace came out and 94 when we shot our film. So I think that it kind of solved the argument for us because up until that point, the model was producer director for siblings, right? And then we went, well, now that now it looks like you can co-direct together. So 
long way around to your question, which is we developed this process over time. We didn't formalize it through philosophical conversations. We never really identified in each other what we think it is that, you know, creates the secret sauce for us. I think again, for fear of like overanalyzing the relationship and then pigeonholing, because you also evolve and change as you grow as an artist, you make different decisions, different things become interesting to you. The one thing I will say is that without question throughout our entire careers, we've always been there for each other in the moments when, you know, our, our big joke is look, if one of us is beaten senseless and exhausted from this very physical process of making movies, this exhaustive process, the odds are the other one is still conscious, right? So at our lowest moments, we've always been there to carry each other through it, no matter, you know, who's focusing on what or who, is, you know, is, is the engine behind the particular project that we're working on. So one thing I love about your resume is that it's all over the place in the in the best kind of way. I mean, you've done TV and film, you've done indies and blockbusters, you've covered action and comedy. There's such a wide breadth of what you've done in your career so far. So was that you just taking opportunities as they came or were you purposefully challenging yourselves to try new genres and new formats? I mean, that's the fun of it. I mean, I think that's what's interesting for us at least about our careers is that we have gone all over the place. And I think that part of uh, the secret sauce for us is challenging each other and going, all right, we've worked in this genre long enough, or we're, you know, we're getting stale here. Let's try something different. And it's helpful when you grow up with a lot of different influences and you like a lot of different things because you have a lot of different aspects of your personality that you want to express in different ways. And everything is met with a new challenge. I mean, comedy is, very different than action, but it's also very similar. There's a lot of staging that is very similar. You know, if you're staging a comedic scene or a comedic set piece, Arrested Development was filled with, you know, comedic set pieces that are all about, you know, geometry and the way that, you know, you you frame it and the where you where the actors are in the frame that enhance the the humor. Action's similar in that you have to think about geography and geometry in a very similar way but for different outcomes. But, you know, film, TV, commercials, we, we, we've done it all, comedy, drama, uh, half-hour TV, hour TV. And, and I think it's constantly searching for, if there's one connective tissue, it's, it's trying to push the cutting edge on things. It's trying to do things that are unique or different and disruptive. And I think growing up in Cleveland, you know, industrial Midwestern city, was fell on tough times when we were kids. We, everyone had a chip on their shoulder because we were made fun of constantly. The river caught on fire, the mayor's hair caught on fire. The, you know, we're sort of the, it was New Jersey and Cleveland competing for, you know, the armpit of America at the time. And uh, and it ga gave you, gave us a certain attitude growing up and a disruptive attitude. And, um, you know, when we did Arrested Development, we were the first, you know, narrative show to shoot on digital cameras. That was, you know, that gave a lot of people at the studio, you know, a lot of acid reflux. And, you know, they're very concerned about how the audience will receive it. Um, the show is insanely ambitious in the amount of locations, the amount of actors, you know, and we we're still shooting that in five, those episodes in five to seven days. And, you know, sometimes having three location changes, um, you know, so uh, a community genre bending, challenging ourselves every week with Dan, come up with another genre to um, both celebrate and make fun of at the same time. Uh, you know, Marvel Universe, uh, you know, I think was a real experiment in storytelling. It's a very modern 
experiment in using multiple franchises to tell a mosaic, you know, of a story. And, uh, and only today's audiences could accept that. I don't think that people were prepared to receive that kind of storytelling 20 or 30 years ago, you know? And, uh, and with Cherry, I mean, Cherry is a movie that's really specifically geared at Gen Z. That's the generation we're trying to reach with that film. They're the ones we're most worried about who are on the front lines of the opioid crisis. They're the ones um, you know, making decisions that are life altering by you know, putting these scientifically engineered pills into their mouth that you know, are, are engineered to be addictive and you know, take their money. And so that movie has you know, a really extensive visual um, playbook to it that you know, changes con constantly as the movie progresses in a way to uh, appeal to um, a generation that's grown up with very vast amounts of information coming at them at incredible speed, and they can absorb it very quickly. You go on TikTok, I think, is sort of the quintessential understanding of how that, that generation absorbs information. It's different information every one minute, you know, uh, coming across on a feed. And, um, and I got four kids and I watch how they process this stuff. and. So we're experimenting with, you know, new ways to tell stories that, you know, reach and appeal to different audiences. Nice. And, you know, that, that kind of leads me to my next question, because I know that you, in addition to projects you both write and direct, you know, you also have just a slew of projects that you also produce. And so what exactly pulls you into a story to say, like, this is what we want to spearhead. This is what we want to, you know, put our, you know, sit in the director's chair for. Like, what, what stories sort of creatively excite you? to make you want to direct it? Well, you know, like you were pointing out earlier, we have like a very eclectic tastes and we've made a wide variety of things. So it's hard to put a finger on like what motivates us, but it's, just, it's basically an emotional reaction that we have or a creative sort of interest that we're trying to explore. It, it could be anything really. We do like to keep surprising ourselves, which I think is why we've had this eclectic road is we we tend to like to zig and zag and use different creative muscles to tell different kinds of stories we all always love the entire variety of what you can do with cinema from big movies to small movies to tv we shoot commercials we sort of love love the entire range of sort of expression that you can have you know as far as directing goes that that's very like we we really figure out like what is motivating us most strongly and what is most unique to our voice you know it's very important to us to make movies that like only we can make or versions of movies that only we can do and producing is we have that sort of same creative litmus test with producing it's just that um with producing we have less of it's not as much of a commitment on our part as as directing directing is really full-on immersion for a year or two, uh, whereas producing is something less than that. But we look for projects that we can support as producers, like meaning like who are artists that we really believe in, that we want to help to their next project, that we can get behind and we can, we can activate in a way that's, that the rest of the industry may not do. So that, like, that's one opportunity. What, what kind of story can we help get made that the, you know, nobody else in the industry would make. I mean, one thing I'll point out is, you know, when we started our own company here, Agbo, as we were moving out of the Marvel phase, the first movie we produced was a movie called Mosul, which is a, was based on a New Yorker article about a SWAT team in, in the city of Mosul when ISIS had taken over the city. And it was this SWAT team 
that stood against ISIS when when the rest of the Iraqi army fled. And, you know, in order to be in the SWAT team, you had to either have been wounded by ISIS or have had a family member killed by ISIS. And so it was a very driven, very focused group of people. So it was a story we, we fell in love with because it was from the point of view of the Iraqis. The Iraqis were the heroes. And we felt like we hadn't seen the war explored properly from that point of view. And also, you know, as we started working with Matt Carnahan, who would ultimately write and direct that film, you know, we all decided to make the movie in Arabic. You know, we shot the movie actually in Arabic. I mean, there, I don't know that there's any other company, Hollywood film company, that would have made that choice. And I'm really proud of that. Joe and I were both really proud of that, that we were able to make a movie in that way from that point of view. And I, I would just cite that as something that I think is like, we, we uniquely brought that movie to the table because we could get, we could get very difficult projects made coming off of our, the success we had at Marvel. And we used it on that film. It's very interesting when, when there are people who, you know, reach the heights of success, commercial success that you, that you all have had, because that opens a tremendous amount of doors for, for both of you. But then it also, you also are in the position of leaving the door open for other people behind you. And so I know that that's something you brought up, Mosul, and there's also, you know, Relic and other films that you've been very strategic in wanting to kind of elevate other storytellers. And so I'd like to hear a little bit more about, you know, what do you feel a sense of responsibility to use your resources and use your access to help other people to tell the stories that you may not be able to tell yourself authentically. Like I'd like to hear a little bit more about sort of like your philosophy of how you want to elevate other creatives and other storytellers. I mean, it, it's a critical part of who we are. And I think that, um, you know, we're acutely aware of the fact that we wouldn't be here if it weren't for Soderbergh who plucked us out of obscurity at the Slamdance Film Festival and gave us a massive opportunity that led to another opportunity. And he's sort of been there supporting us throughout our careers. And, um, you know, he gave of himself uh, at that time. And he was, and we'll tell the story in a little bit, but, you know, he was struggling when we met him because he had come off of um, Sex Lies and had a really hot run and made some really challenging movies. And that all worked commercially. So when we met with him, he was, for the first time, he was having a hard time getting his movies made. And he made a transition in his career towards more commercial movies and you can see it with out of sight and Brockovich and traffic and you know bigger films you know for us we feel like we owe a karmic debt to the universe to help other people and uh, um, find their footing in this business because we know that you can only get into it if someone holds the door open for you there's not a lot of opportunity for people who exist on the outside of this business and in cleveland we grew up a million miles away from it and nothing to do with hollywood we, you know, we're 20 years old. We didn't go to film school. We were, you know, before we shot our first movie and we were reading books on how to make films. You know, we, we had to fight our way into it. And it took every drop of blood in our body. It wasn't easy to get into the business. It's not easy to stay in it. So, you know, now that, you know, one other thing that Stephen taught us was he would say one for you, one for them, right? Because he was trying to teach us that this, this was a business, right? You have to show people you can make them money and then you use the brand leverage that you have for making them money to do things that are important to you. Well, we had a big one for them, even though we had an amazing experience at Marvel. I was just saying that we did seven years of very commercial filmmaking that afforded us the opportunity to start Agbo and, you know, to use that company to help um, 
you know, new filmmakers uh, and uh, um, rising filmmakers find their footing in the business and part whatever experience that we can onto them. And, and the other thing we learned from working with Marvel, spending, you know, eight years traveling the world, telling stories to global audiences is that Hollywood is incredibly Anglo-centric and there are a lot of stories to be told. And there are a lot of fascinating stories to be told. And part of advancing representation is through media. And media is a very powerful tool. We're learning the last four years of, you know, the abuse of social media under Trump that, you know, people can be influenced very quickly and very easily. And, you know, when we were making Mosul, one of the more profound days we've ever had on a set was when the cast was tearing up saying this is how important this was to them because they had only been ever offered terrorist roles or bad guy roles in movies and TV shows. And we thought, oh my God, here we are in 2019 or 2020 making this movie. And none of these actors have had an opportunity to play a hero. And that speaks volumes about representation and where we are with it. Our hope is to use our, our brand leverage moving forward to do things that other people wouldn't do, to do things that the system wouldn't do because it doesn't necessarily make sense. That's what you count on artists for. You know, we didn't we didn't make money on Mosul. You know, it, it was a passion project that uh, that cost it a, a lot of money actually to make, but it was perhaps one of the more important things we've done in our career. And we're going to continue to look for those opportunities to tell international stories um, that help advance representation and, and the way that people feel about one another, because we don't find a way to share empathy or, you know, engender empathy for one another. We're, we're, we're toast. I hope you're enjoying the episode so far. We're going to take a quick break. And when we're back, the Russos dive into their creative process for adapting Nico Walker's best-selling book, Cherry, and the career-changing advice they received from director Steven Soderbergh. This episode of Creative Control is brought to you by Verizon, the network you can rely on for your phone and for your home internet. Find the plan that's right for you at verizon.com. Now I want to talk a bit more about your new film, Cherry, which of course is based on Nico Walker's memoir of the same name. So what pulled you two into this story? And did you feel any particular pressure with this being your follow-up after the record-breaking success of Endgame? There's a couple answers to that question. One, why Cherry is, having grown up in Cleveland, the industrial Midwest is also part of the front lines against the opioid crisis. There's an existential blight that's gripped that part of the country as it's declined over the last several decades. There's a lack of forward momentum that people feel. And I think, um, you know, drugs become very cheap uh, and very potent. And so it's easy. And like I said, it's scientifically engineered to make you addicted. So, you know, once you get on them, it's very hard to get off them. So we've, you know, we've known a lot of people, family members, friends, um, who have suffered greatly because of the crisis, some who are still in recovery, others who have passed away. Uh, so it's a very personal issue for us. And again, having four kids felt like it was um, an important story to tell to that generation. And when you look at the movie, it's really about two very simple decisions that the characters make that they don't have the life experience to make that affects the course of their entire lives. One is when she's dealing with trauma, from her childhood and can't accept his love. And so she rejects him. And then because he's rejected and he feels a lack of forward momentum in his life, he joins the army. 
And those two decisions that they really don't have the life experience to understand alter the next decade and a half of their lives in very dramatic ways. And I think that's the tragedy of the movie. It's a, it's a modern day love story. It's a tragic love story. There's optimism and hope at the end of it, but still at a great cost. So that's the, you know, the very personal reason for why we made Cherry. And then coming off of Endgame, the nice thing in our careers is, you mentioned this earlier about looking back about how eclectic they are. It, it, it's been for us. Anthony's only measure of success is sort of emotional fulfillment. You know, do we get out of bed every day, happy to do, be doing the work that we're doing? And that's really only ever been our metric. I think we became adept at like from Arrested. The very early days of Arrested, we were combing sort of message boards and gleaning information from the fans about how they were responding to the show. And that gave us and Mitch ideas about where to take it. Same with Community. The whole Jeff Annie storylines came from shippers online who started you know, shipping Jeff and Annie. We, we went, that's a really interesting combination we haven't thought of is this older failed lawyer with this younger student, that's complex and interesting. Let's go explore that. But we haven't cared much about perception or the way that, you know, we're defined by things that are, you know, external uh, influences because we have found that when we have at points in our career, we've made terrible decisions and done things that, you know, we're not happy with in terms of work. And those are good lessons to learn because you learn more from your failures than you do from your successes. So, you know, we're, we're at that point now where we're, we're making things that collectively make us happy, that we think are important to us, that we want to pour our energy into. If you're going to take time away from your wife and your children, whom you love, you want to do it for things that you feel have the value, time value that you're losing. And Cherry was one of those projects. So when I watched Cherry, I thought it was going to be a pretty linear story, right? But there were so many bold creative choices from breaking the fourth wall to these dreamy freeze frame shots, or that scene where Cherry's at the bank and the teller is just a silhouette. So when you decided this is the story that you wanted to tell, how did you decide how you were going to tell it? Yeah, I mean, I think it, st it starts back with our experience of the novel, you know, the novel felt so fresh and exciting to us. Part of the reason why it felt so fresh and exciting to us was because you had a really interesting point of view for, coming from this character. And what was interesting about it is like, so the book is like highly dependent on an inner monologue. And that inner monologue is often out of sync with the external events of what's happening to the character. And it's that contrast, it's the incongruity between his inner experience and his external experience which is what, where all the sort of verve comes from in the story. And we wanted to maintain that as we translating it to film. Now, of course, film, you know, you can't just, uh, you, know, it does, you know, an inner monologue doesn't work in film. You can, we certainly used voiceover in the movie, so we did get his inner thoughts, but it's, it doesn't work in the same way as, as a novel. So we had to come up with other ways to make the movie very subjective and very specific to Cherry's experience. And we wanted to use all the tools we could as, as storytellers as, and, as, uh, in cinema to do that. And so that was really our, I think that's, you know, if you cite the sort of stylistic flourishes of the movie, they were all, all designed around that idea. Uh, whether it be 
how he experiences people, like that example that you brought up when he's with the bank teller, you know, going into a bank, feeling um, disempowered, feeling bullied by the bank, not knowing how to get them to understand his point of view, and just sort of not even being able to see this human being who's, who's sort of rejecting him in the moment. But we did the same thing too with focus. We worked cl very closely with our cinematographer, Tom Siegel, to figure, and, and our A camera operator, um, Jeff Haley, to figure out ways where we could make the character a little bit disconnected from his environment, whether that's through focus or lenses where we separate him or we use wide lenses that kind of warp the space a little bit. Um, we were really looking for a variety of ways to really filter that entire experience of that film through that character's sensibilities. So one thing I'm curious about is, you know, how would you say working within the Marvel Cinematic Universe expanded your skill sets as storytellers? Yeah, I think I think if they taught us anything, you know, society functions in cycles. You know, we we made some choices with this very commercial material that was antithetical to the way that commercial movies functioned up to that point. Meaning, you know, we've been programmed for decades to when you go into a commercial movie from the advent of commercial films in the mid to late 70s to, you know, just prior to Marvel's evolution, you go into a commercial film, the experience you're supposed to have is hope and optimism, good guy wins, you walk out at the end and you feel good. And then it goes to, you know, sequel two, and there's some small changes made uh, to make it feel fresh. And sometimes it's successful, sometimes it's not, but it follows generally the same formula and has for decades. Ant and I tend to grow tired of models fairly quickly. And I think that's that high functioning ADHD where we'll look at a model and go, well, that's boring. What are we gonna do with that? You know, how can we tell a story in that model? And so I think if you look at what we did from Winter Soldier through Endgame, it was just a relentless assault or disruption of traditional storytelling in commercial movies. We took a character that had been presented in his first film in Captain America as sort of an emblematic, heroic character, and we turned him in, into a dissident by the end of his second movie, you know, and, and hopefully told a credible story about how he got there. He rejected the, the flag in the country under which, you know, he had, he had been created and served. Uh, and then we took the Avengers and Civil War and smashed them into each other and tore them apart disruption, you know, Infinity War, we killed half of them, you know, disruption, right? So people are leaving the theater with experiences that they weren't expecting. They're being surprised by, you know, the formula. Uh, it's being un upended. And then you get to Endgame and of course the death of, of Tony Stark at the end of it, was the ultimate disruption to the Marvel Universe because this was the character that, you know, it, it, um, it created and carried most of the weight of it. and you know, highest grossing actor, Downey. And so it was, you know, again, massive disruption. And I think what we learned and what we loved about that is that we live in a period with this new generation that is that embraces surprise and embraces deconstruction and embraces that disruption in a way that previous generations had not. And it might, it certainly has to do with the world that they're living in and the way that they feel about the world and commercial movies embracing thematics that feel fresh and relevant to them. 
and I think that's exciting because the model can be broken and reinvented in a way that achieves historic success, not just success, but historic success. That's what excited us the most as, as filmmakers and moving forward, you know, it, it frees you and allows you to go, okay, you know, when we tackle these bigger projects, we can, we can play in a disruptive sandbox and, and do something hopefully different and surprising or bring elements that are surprising to it and the audience is gonna respond and re reward the movie for it. I think that's significant for anyone working in that space. And frankly, you know, most people have to work in that space in order to then make the smaller films that, that they love, that, that, you know, that aren't going to make box office that you're, you're leveraging your brand for. Sure, and that, that actually may feed into my, my last question. I always love to ask my guests because this is a podcast all about creativity. Like, at this point in your career, how have you come to define creativity? Because you mentioned that, you know, you had this this sort of amazing run in, in, in disrupting sort of the traditional models of kind of commercial filmmaking. So, I mean, it, it, would you, is that your definition? Like, how, would you, how have you come to define creativity at this point in your career and in what you do? Probably we define it in a number of ways, but I think one essential way that we've defined it for a while now, or at least we've been conscious of defining it in this way for, for a while now is, um, you know, it's, it's basically how do we surprise ourselves? That's, that's when we know, that's when we start to get excited. You know, when we can think of ideas that seem dangerous to us, confusing to us, slippery to us, uh, sort of when we're not quite sure what we would do with something like that, there, that's where we I think that's what we, where we start to get excited because we know we're, because we, again, we've, we've made so much throughout our careers. Now we've been working as filmmakers for, for well over 20 years, 20, maybe 25 years, even we've studied film our entire lives, you know? So we really try to run at things where we, we don't feel a sense of familiarity, you know, so that we can feel like when we start to make decisions and choices and have ideas, we know we're in, we're sort of in a free form or a free fall to a degree. And of course, we always work within a structure that will keep us from falling apart. But I think that, yeah, I think creativity, you know, at least one by one measure is when we, and that, again, I think that's what, one of the benefits that Joe and I have is working as a team is like our job is to surprise each other. So it's like, we're basically, when we can surprise one another, we know we've got, we've got a good idea on the table. Joe, would you agree with that? Or do you have anything to add? Yeah, no, I totally would. I think you can, if we go back and, and not to keep using this buzzword, but there maybe another way to frame it is, and this is a more vulgar term, but there, there you know, I think we define creativity through fuckery, right? Like we, we, we have a subversive component to us and our first film was incredibly subversive in narrative structure. And I would argue that Cherry, Nobody's seen pieces, but again, this is about emotional fulfillment and personal fulfillment. Uh, and and you know, so you know, something Soderbergh recognized when he watched Cherry is it's companion piece to pieces. You know, these are you know, it was a very radical, very stylized, very nonlinear movie pieces. That's what he responded to. No one else responded to it. I mean, we were we were dead in the water if it weren't for Soderbergh because we made this crazy movie that you know was really inspired by Godard and Truffaut and. You know, it was not something that anyone would look at and go, oh, these guys have promise as commercial filmmakers. It was more these guys are, you know, fringe uh, um, uh, 
uh, filmmakers with, you know, a crazy point of view. Uh, and then, um, you know, Collinwood is a very self-aware movie uh, that's based on the Bowery Boys, which was something that we loved growing up and said, hey, let's make a Bowery Boys film. And then Arrested Development, like I said, we, we talked about earlier, we disrupted the, you know, the, the traditional sitcom using digital cameras to format a sense of humor. Community was something that changed from tone to tone from week to week, it, you know, took the, it was like a cheers of every time Norm walked in, it was a different tone, you know, it was a thriller one week and then the next week he walked in and it was an action movie and the next week he walked in. And that was the experiment of that show and on and on all the way up through Marvel and Cherries we've discussed. And I think a lot of that comes from this conversation we had with Soderbergh that sort of reinforced this notion, this lunch table conversation we had when he was struggling. You know, we had made pieces and we were sitting at lunch with him and he, he called us. It was one of those crazy calls you get where you pick up the phone and you go, uh, he says, hi, it's Steven Soderbergh. And I looked at my wife and I was like, you know, this is one of my buddies um, fucking with me. This can't be true. And then, you know, he sort of talked me off the ledge and said, let's go to lunch and have a conversation. A week later, we met him at a restaurant called Versailles in Culver City, he had some Cuban food with him. And he told us a story about his career where he felt like he was at a crossroads where he had not made anyone money in years. And so he was not being given money to make movies anymore. And so he said with a somewhat heavy heart, and we remember this very, very well, I have to go make this movie at Universal called Out of Sight with an actor named George Clooney. And Clooney was coming off of VR at the time. And, you know, it was sort of a, a you know, Clooney was on the come. It wasn't like, you know, it was a TV actor making a transition. He was a heartthrob. Did he have the chops? Remember all the sort of knocks against George when he first emerged. And, you know, and, and Ant and I were sitting there, these two sort of assholes from Cleveland entrenched in the French New Wave and all the other crazy influences we had going, why would you do that? Like, I don't, you know, if you're going to flame out, then flame out on your own terms. And, and he said, it's called show business for a reason. It's a business. And if you can't accept and understand that aspect of it, get out of it. Go write a book. It's cheaper, you know? Go experiment in other formats. And if you can't accept, understand, and then use the business component of it to achieve personal fulfillment, then get out now, guys. And that was really the profound shift for us from guys who probably would have went and made another piece as to, all right, well, how do we function in this world? What is our role in it? And that led us to a show called Lucky, which is still one of our favorite things we've ever done at FX that was genre bending. And you know, it seemed to be that every, the independent cinema of the 90s was shifting into television with the advent of HBO and FX and some more radical networks that were swearing and do, you know, using adult content in their shows. And it attracted that whole crowd that wanted that edge. And, and we fashioned our career off of this concept of like using the business to advance our, our own personal fulfillment. And, you know, we've reached a point where we're incredibly happy and proud of our careers and excited to be where we are and excited at what comes next. Thank you so much for your time. This has been such a fantastic conversation. So thank you. And, and again, congrats on Cherry and everything coming because it was really 
I really enjoyed that movie. I really did. I thought it was really well done. That. These were incredible questions, and it's always it's always fun to reflect with you know uh, questions that you haven't been asked before, where you have to sort of think through your history a little bit and remember why you made the choices that you made and what led you to where you are. And sometimes you forget yeah. those things, and and they're incredibly valuable to keeping you. Um, honest and keeping you on the right track moving forward. You're welcome, Joe. <laughs> kidding. Thank you. <laughs> this has been wonderful. Thanks for listening to Creative Conversation. Be sure to leave a review with any comments or feedback you have because I absolutely love hearing from you. And make sure you subscribe so you don't miss an episode. See you soon.